Welcome to Red Enlightenment, a podcast on socialism, science, and spirituality. In this eighth and final episode, we'll recap the previous episodes, drawing out some overarching principles, and we'll end with some observations on the notion of enlightenment and its relation to education. I hope you enjoy the episode. I was at Glastonbury Festival when the results of the Brexit referendum were announced. That morning we sat huddled in a circle of camping chairs under throbbing hangovers, scrolling through social media in silence. Having spent the last few days blissfully cut off from the outside world, the earth had suddenly shifted beneath our feet, and these muddy, fenced-off fields in the middle of Somerset were plunged back into the mire of politics. As the rest of the site awoke, a trickle of young liberals began to shuffle past the store we were working on, picking up I-heart migrants badges and looking crestfallen. I noted how often the hippie outfits came with plummy accents, and wondered if it had always been this way, or if the olden days when my brother would jump the fence had been different, less corporate, less captured, less middle class. We wouldn't be leaving for a few days, so I pushed the outer world to the back of my mind again, My shift ended, and moments later substances were being passed from person to person. I rubbed some acrid gunk against my gums, snorted one thing, swallowed another. As the drugs took hold, the hypermanic world shifted gears, as though speeding traffic had been roaring around our heads and we had accelerated to catch up. We raced out of the campsite towards the distant music, weaving into the flows of people. We reached an open field, and a wall of sound submerging ourselves in the noise throbbing from the giant speaker stacks, we slipped out of our bodies and into the one body of the crowd. I've been thinking a lot about dialectics, my new friend bellowed into my ears, his pupils dilated. The music was swallowing most of what he said, leaving me with only snippets to piece together. He pointed over to a tree, mentioning angles, nature, interconnection with all life, with the life of the global climate, I think I caught the term metabolic rift, and then back to the crowd, gesturing to the whole, to all of our friends around us, and we slipped back into dancing in cacophonous, joyous silence. The melding of Marxism and hippie lingo might have made me cringe at other times, but I was spilling open, my barriers were down. I looked over at the trees, the clouds beyond, the people dancing beneath, and saw one single pulsating whole, differentiated but interwoven. I had read, written, and thought so much with these words, like flow, interconnection, power, yet I realised now that I could see it and feel it. We danced through the evening, and as the sun set, the natural greens and blues of the fields and sky gave way to neon signs and laser light shows, set against a beyond bathed in black. I stared out into it, into a future we could not yet see. With the previous seven episodes behind us, let's now reconstruct the argument I've been setting out. At the present historical moment, we face challenges on many scales. Globally, there are ecological, technological and public health crises, which together require knowledges beyond the traditional boundaries of socialist thought. 
there is a lack of any global progressive alliance to scale up struggles against these problems, hampered, as I have argued, by the Western left's unwillingness to engage with differing worldviews. We've seen the growth of fascist political projects on national levels and the relative failure of socialist electoral alternatives. On local levels, there is the intensification of exploitation in work and precarity in housing. And the leftist organisations that should be there to respond to these conditions remain small in scale, with the wider left community often facing problems with toxic and unwelcoming atmospheres. All of this contributes to mental health issues and political burnout in individuals, creating a negative feedback loop which constrains the potential for social movements to emerge which might successfully combat these conditions. The left needs a new approach to deal with these multiple crises. It must of course remain socialist, identifying capitalism as a core driver of these problems. It must be scientific, both in maintaining a rigorous critique of capitalism, but also in how it discourses with and integrates knowledge from the natural sciences. And it must be spiritual, in the sense of bringing in the felt experience of the human body, its needs and desires, and in the process opening up greater space for dialogue with the world's majority religious population. This overlapping of socialism, science and spirituality is what I have called Red Enlightenment. One could approach such a Red Enlightenment in a variety of ways, and what I have set out in this podcast is merely one suggestion. I would encourage others to take the concept and make it their own. Indeed, since the podcast began, a number of people have told me how they can see their own work falling under this umbrella of Red Enlightenment, even if we were developing it in different ways. How I am approaching such a Red Enlightenment is to hinge it on a process philosophy. That is, a metaphysical framework that presents reality as in constant flux, constructed of processes, relations, potentials and bodies. With this, we can highlight moments of contact between Marxist political economy, complex system science, and various religious philosophies and theologies. This can open up a way of analysing and critiquing social systems, a way of understanding the structural consistency between organisms, ecologies, societies, and the human mind, and a way of speculating about the nature of the universe and of life through embodied practices that help us to feel as well as think those ideas. A brief recap of the previous seven episodes will demonstrate how this worldview comes together. We first looked at the term enlightenment, disentangling it from the meaning associated with 18th century European secular thought, and reconnecting it to a multicultural and spiritual sense. Harrison Fluss and Landon Frim's radical enlightenment was taken as a jumping-off point, showing how enlightenment contributed not only to supporting colonialism and capitalism, but also struggles against those systems, such as in the Haitian Revolution. I argued, however, that to fully understand that latter moment and the Enlightenment as a whole, we needed to reject the idea that it was an inherently secular movement. I thus took the alternate meaning of Enlightenment associated with certain so-called Eastern religions as of equal importance. A contemporary leftist Enlightenment must account for this spiritual aspect, even developing its own secular spiritualities and in doing so it must perform a certain decolonization of its sources, one that expands our history beyond the limits of ancient Greece and early Christianity, to embrace Islamic, 
Indian, Chinese, and indigenous philosophies, theologies, and worldviews. Yet these historical considerations must not distract us from the purpose of the project, which is to respond to the present political moment. We look then to Michael Brooks and Mark Fisher for the outlines of a strategic approach to this secular spiritual socialism. Michael Brooks's Machiavellian spirituality focused on bridging different global worldviews, engaging people's hearts in our movement building, the detoxification of organising spaces, and developing healing practices to manage our personal and interpersonal struggles. On that global scale, I have stressed, however, that the goal is not the synthesis of worldviews into some homogenous unity. Rather, it is the articulation of our own unique position, inspired by and ready to enter into mutual dialogue with other worldviews, whilst maintaining its own autonomy and others' autonomy. Mark Fisher's materialist spirituality, on the other hand, focused on the production of post-capitalist desire. This gravitated around his interest in psychoanalytical Marxism, cybernetics and Spinoza, mirroring our trio of socialism, science and spirituality. To bring this into the Red Enlightenment fold as I envisage it, meant broadening these influences to include other global worldviews beyond Spinoza. So we went looking for similar religious philosophies of immanence, later finding this in figures like Adi Shankara and Mullah Sadra. The Machiavellian imperative to make do with what we have at our disposal meant updating the cybernetic basis to include more contemporary complex system science. And in order to best integrate with the existing left and its imagined community, I sought a more historically grounded engagement with the communist movement, stretching back through the Russian Revolution to Marx and Engels themselves. Episodes 2, 3 and 4 then elaborated those spiritual, scientific and socialist sources in turn. I defined spirituality as the intersection of metaphysics, ethics and embodiment. In other words, the imagination of the unseen, of proper behaviour and the practices we use to experience those ideas. We looked at some of the history of where socialist thought had dovetailed with these scientific and spiritual perspectives, such as in the God-building project associated with Anatoly Lunacharsky and Alexander Bogdanov during the Russian Revolution, and the cybernetic socialism and liberation theology of 1960s Latin America. Turning back to Marxist theory itself, I set out an ontological framework that could ground an analysis of capitalism whilst emphasising its points of contact with these spiritual and scientific perspectives. In notions like the production process, class relations and labour power, we can see the outline of our metaphysics of process, relation, potentia and bodies, with other concepts like alienation linking into the scientific notion of embodied cognition and the ethical and embodied aspects of spirituality. The second half of the podcast, in episodes 5, 6 and 7, then took the three aspects of spirituality in turn, looking at each through the metaphysical framework set out so far. We explored how these ideas might help us to navigate the existential struggles of death, groundlessness, insatiable desire and belittlement, and how we could find both comfort and a spur to action in notions such as objective immortality and infinite possibility. We thought about the unknown within other people, identifying love with the activity of empowering the other, and the development of an anti-fascist cognition of complexity. Finally, looking to a range of secular aesthetic practices, from the formally artistic to the everyday, 
we found a means of embodying these perspectives, both to feel them and to make them habits of our consciousness. To contrast what I've set out with Fluss and Frim's approach, we can compare their underlying, or perhaps emergent, principles. In an article for New Republic, Fluss and Frim suggest five principles for a new Enlightenment project. Rationalism, materialism, humanism, hedonism, and perfectionism. In short, that means for them, a belief in the ultimate knowability of the universe, including the social, that there are certain laws in nature to which humans and human society are equally subject, that human life has universal and equal value, that we should focus on and positively value the bodily and worldly, and that combining these prior four principles leads to the ultimate goal of the improvement of self and society. There is some similarity in these principles with what I've set out, but in each case I would want to clarify some potential problems and important distinctions. Beginning with materialism, we saw that this term creates problems in scientific discourse if it is taken to mean the grounding of reality in matter. As developments over the 20th and 21st century in fields such as quantum mechanics have shown, matter is not a stable ground, but something itself emergent from lower-level processes. As the theoretical physicist Carlo Rovelli puts it, quote, If we try to put together what we have learned about the physical world in the course of the 20th century, the clues point towards something profoundly different from what we were taught at school. An elementary structure of the world is emerging, generated by a swarm of quantum events, where time and space do not exist. Quantum fields draw space, time, matter and light, exchanging information between one event and another. Reality is a network of granular events. The dynamic which connects them is probabilistic, between one event and another, space, time, matter and energy melt in a cloud of probability. End quote. We must resist, however, the popular reading of this as saying matter does not exist, or even that the world does not exist, as this presupposes that the smaller scale is somehow more real than the larger. Instead, we can say that larger scale emergent phenomena atoms, chairs, humans, oceans, are all equally real. What the groundlessness of matter means is simply that they are empty of any fixed underlying essence. You can always break something down, and will never find a stable, indivisible physical substance beneath it. And yet those emergent bodies have properties which the underlying processes and relations do not. They have their own reality and are not reducible to what is below. I have referred to this as a multiscalar ontology, where different scales both share certain tendencies, what some might call laws, but also bring about entirely new ones. I am therefore taking materialism in the metaphysical sense as ontological realism, meaning both that there is a mind-independent world, and that this involves a range of forces that apply equally to the natural and the social realm. The more specifically socio-historical sense of materialism, that history is made by human activity and the structures and processes that such activity is organised by, can be retained. 
Whilst bodies beyond the human have impacts on history, the particular complexity of the human body and its social organisation provide it with uniquely extensive powers to transform the world. Yet at the same time, these systems are subject to many of the same tendencies of other complex systems, from microorganisms up to the ecosphere. And such a materialism does not deny the role of ideas in the structuring and guiding of human action. Next, our rationalism cannot presume that the universe is ultimately knowable. If potentials, that is, immanent futures, are equally as real as the current actualized world, and potentials cease to be mere potentials once actualized, then potentials are in themselves unknowable. And given that anybody has countless potentials at any moment, from which only a limited number will ever be actualized, then potentials vastly outstretch the actual world. And an actualization can itself create new potentials in that body or other bodies, meaning the necessarily unknowable vastly outstretches the knowable. The same applies over time. As Stuart Kaufman argues, it is impossible to know in advance the outcomes of biological or social evolution, because new features can emerge as epiphenomena of evolutionary selection, only later taking on useful functions in a new context. This breaks any linear determination that would enable total prediction of the future. And then there is the unknowability of the other knower, that is, other people, as their very otherness is constituted by the absence between us. Even in those aspects of the universe which we may consider knowable, like physical laws, the best we can say is that we construct knowledge systems that can help us to navigate the world and its regularities. The universe in that sense can always be known better, but never with absolute certainty. And alongside that expansion of knowledge, the unknowable always expands in tandem. The combination of this epistemic relativism with the aforementioned ontological realism is what I have called embodied reason. This emphasises that reason is not something abstract, but is performed by actual bodies in the world, and thus has to be explained as emerging out of bodily processes and limited perspectives. This centering of the body also calls us to reject the false dichotomy between the rational and the emotional, given the inextricability of emotion from reasoning, as argued in the work of contemporary cognitive neuroscientists like Antonio Damasio. And this reason is not something only achieved by the educated, but is fundamental to all human life. Identifying such effective universals is politically necessary for the production of global movement. And if by humanism we merely deny any difference in intrinsic value among human lives, then this is welcome. It becomes problematic if we then allied any real difference among humans, if we deny how humans are necessarily embedded in wider ecosystems, or if we create an archetypal human who reflects merely the dominant powers, white, male, western, able-bodied, and so on. However, to go to the opposite extreme of anti-humanisms or post-humanisms that deny any particular value in human life whatsoever, or indeed any difference between human life and the world outside it, is equally problematic. Without an understanding of the specificities of human experience, particularly human suffering, as do certain new materialists who equate human experience with that of rocks, streams or forests, such a post-humanism would always risk a slide into a kind of eco-fascism. 
I suggest that the focus should not be on the human at all, instead thinking in terms of an ethics of consciousness. In other words, that ethics is related to the potential for suffering felt by complex self-reproducing bodies, whether they are human, other animal or machine. This requires that we hold on to what we have said elsewhere about self-reproducing bodies, that such reproduction is only possible because of a body's embeddedness in an environment from which it draws its sustenance and which it shapes in turn. Very few of the bodies within any environment will themselves be conscious, even if they are non-consciously cognitive, but can attract ethical consideration by virtue of their reproductive role for other suffering bodies. Despite considering such ecological relations, this is a multi-scalar ontology, not a flat ontology, and as such acknowledges that certain emergent properties, like autopoiesis and consciousness, bring with them particular ethical considerations that other objects do not. We can thus retain the ethical centrality of the human and animal without an anti-ecological domination of nature. All of this focus on the body can be connected to that term hedonism, albeit in isolation this word risks being interpreted in an individualist, narcissistic way that would clash with a collective political project. We must also ensure that this so-called worldly focus does not imply anti-spirituality, but allows for a spirituality grounded in ontological realism. For these reasons, I avoid the term hedonism and substitute it with aesthetic liberation. By aesthetics, I mean not the detached sense of aesthetics as visual art, but aesthetics as interventions in our felt, embodied experience. From music making and experimentation with clothing and hair, to organising a protest and punching a fascist. All of these are phenomena with an aesthetic dimension. But merely engaging with aesthetics does not determine its ethical character, as attested to by the aesthetic orientation of early 20th century fascism, like that of Marinetti and the Manifesto of Futurism. So by aesthetic liberation, I intend to narrow this to acts which bring about relational autonomy, that is, freedom from systems of oppression and domination, freedom to in the sense of empowerment and creating new potentials of the self, and freedom with in the shaping of environments which enable all of these freedoms. The particular acts which amplify such freedoms are not fixed, and are dependent on the bodies in question. It could be anything from learning how to organise direct democracy in a local community, to the kind of body modification that usually comes under the term transhumanism. Rather than engaging with aesthetics in a purely critical mode, such as analysing the ideology underlying a popular film, aesthetic liberation is the affirmative engagement in bodily practices in order to change consciousness. Finally, whilst a focus on improvement is important for an Enlightenment project, the notion of perfectionism has particular dangers. The perfect must be rendered not as a predetermined endpoint, but as an internal vision which structures present action, always shifting in a never-completed process. Nor can it be a singular, transcendent notion of perfection that all bodies conform to, but must arise from within those bodies and their needs, diverse in its manifestations of what it means to improve, but complementary in that it builds towards increasing collective power. For these reasons, I substitute perfectionism for what I am calling the acceleration of spirit. Spirit is understood here as the interrelation of all self-reproducing processes, 
all-embodied mind and consciousness. Taking all of the preceding chapters into account, the overall trajectory of a global social movement must mean an acceleration of the processes which produce and reproduce liberatory systems on all scales, ecological, social and psychological. Any unity of this accelerating spirit must be a relative one that retains the autonomy of its parts, emerging through mutual transformation and not from above through command and control. In other words, we seek a global project without an imperial centre. As Rodrigo Nunes put it in his recent book, this must be neither horizontal nor vertical, neither fragmentary and piecemeal, nor rigidly centralised and domineering, but based on a consistent ecology of movements. Such an acceleration is not primarily technological, but equally biological, such as in the flows of energy which sustain human bodies and ecosystems, and social in the acceleration of the growth of new and existing socialist organisations, or the viral spread of socialist ideas, and so on. That said, given that the collective subject extends into its tools and is embedded in its environments, our entanglement with technology must also be taken into account. This means not only the mental effects of attention-manipulating social media, or the effects of automation on work, but also the possible changes that may emerge, such as with greater artificial intelligence. In line with what we have said about the inextricability of emotion and reason, some AI researchers have argued that truly human-like intelligence will only be possible when machines are able to feel in a way analogous to us. Although such artificial general intelligence may be far off, if it is even possible, our ethical focus on consciousness and suffering means we must keep an eye on those developments and the new questions they raise. So how do these philosophical principles translate into organising principles? One way is in the importance of what I've called relative autonomy. Autonomy is relative here in two senses. Firstly, that autonomy is never total, involving degrees of freedom from control, but bodies never being isolated from environmental influence. It is also relative in the sense that freedom is not just freedom from, but freedom with, in relation to an environment. The goal is to expand freedom through the redesign of and intensification of relations between bodies, not the severing of all relations. Individual freedoms from capitalist exploitation are enabled through the creation of empowering environments. The autonomy of social movement groups come through their relation in supportive ecologies, and the autonomy of cultures and knowledge systems through their mutual support and transformation against those that would seek to crush them. The notion of care also becomes central, but this expands beyond the mere provision of material needs. Care requires attention, and a cognition of complexity that acknowledges the unknowability of the other. Care is a relation which aims at empowerment of the other, uncovering the other's needs through communication. This has to play a part not only in our interpersonal relations, but also in our organisational processes and in the vision of the society we want to create. Emphasising care should not be reduced to increasing the value of care work as it is currently performed, but ensuring that such work, both formal and informal, is neither alienating nor oppressive for carer nor recipient. Simply expanding existing forms of care when they are in many ways insufficient, can serve to expand their abusiveness. 
In an article for New Socialist, Stefan Blaney details how being sectioned under the Mental Health Act can act as a form of incarceration and punishment without trial, something which has dramatically increased over the past decade and which is disproportionately used against ethnic minorities. Quote, when it comes to mental health, this embedded racism means, for example, that the behaviour of a black man undergoing a psychotic episode is more likely to be perceived as violent or threatening. As a result, black men are 17 times more likely than their white counterparts to be diagnosed with a serious mental health condition such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, and to face the medico-legal consequences of diagnoses associated with antisocial behaviour. End quote. If we are to create a society around the notion of care, therefore, we have to transform both our notion of what care even means, as well as the institutions and practices through which we enact care. Beyond autonomy and care, or if you prefer, freedom and love, we should further aim to build an ecology of spiritual socialisms. Even as a secular movement, the goal is not hegemonic secularity, but hegemonic spirituality, through relations with groups who share an orientation to socialism and liberatory politics. This will mean different things in different contexts. In the US, it seems likely that a form of Christian liberation theology would be most prominent, whereas in the UK, where church attendance has collapsed more dramatically, there may be a more even balance between religious and secular projects. Whilst such relations would likely not be without their tensions, it is imperative that we seek to find and support groups oriented to the left rather than allying with conservative forces, as parts of the British left have done in the past, such as around the Iraq war. In any case, building such an ecology will require a mixture of approaches, transforming existing institutions, creating entirely new organisations and modes of living, supporting and expanding those existing but marginalised liberatory groups, and struggling against those which are antagonistic and beyond change. That means not only supporting other religious communities to take a socialist direction, but experimenting with and spreading our own secular practices, and embedding ourselves within existing communities. That could be starting communist organisations within the psychedelic community, or among the so-called wellness culture of mindfulness, yoga and working out. It means connecting socialist organisations to the existing network of artist-led spaces, or to DIY gig promoters and clubs and so on. It is important that we have more than just activist groups, like those that protest against fossil fuel sponsorship of the arts, and include groups which stress the consciousness-raising aspects of creating and experiencing art and other practices in themselves. Ideally, these would be groups which meet together, create together, and coordinate with other aspects of the left, including the labour movement and traditional revolutionary organisations. It means the traditional labour movement improving both its religious and popular cultural literacy, and finding ways to productively relate to and support all of these practices. We should aim, finally, to create an acceleration of transformation, in all scales of body from the global to the self, bodies are in constant breakdown, and it is only through a balance of forces that they either remain stable or transform in a coherent direction. We should think, therefore, in terms of intervening into this balance of forces, in changing the speeds of collapse or reproduction of various systems. It requires that we see the scene in front of us 
not merely in broad abstracts like capitalism or nature, but also in terms of the specific bodies at play. This state, this city, this ecology, this organisation, this person, taking their specific histories and dynamics into account. It also requires us to see change neither as arising purely from impersonal forces, nor through the mere will of people. Instead, forces beyond us create a field of potentials, and it is our particular actions in that context that shape the direction of change that is actualized. This is the case just as much in the self as in society, where social change comes about not just through the impersonal economic forces of capitalism, nor through the valiant efforts of activists and social movements, but in their combination. So too changes in myself are determined not only by my social environment and upbringing, nor merely through a heroic effort of will. Consciousness change arises through struggle within myself and between myself and my environment. Personal crises, organisational crises and social crises can therefore all be moments of productive change in how they break apart the patterns of ordinary settled life and in the process break apart prior limits on the field of potentials. The task is to prepare ourselves to be ready to intervene at the moment of crisis to change ourselves and our world. The notion of Red Enlightenment clearly relates to education. Yet when we hear that word, it can be difficult to disentangle it from the conventions of institutional state education, with all its functions of the protection of elite knowledge, the production of workers, and the reproduction of national identity. For our purposes, we must think of education more broadly as the transformation of the mind. Even in spite of the role of educational institutions in maintaining the status quo, there is evidence that highly educated populations tend more strongly towards progressive politics. The emerging generation left in many Western countries is partly attributable to the growth in higher education, coupled with those material conditions like diminished possibilities for work and home ownership. Rapid rollbacks might be made in state funding for education, but once an individual has been educated and their consciousness altered, that change can potentially pass down the generations, making a largely irreversible transformation. And yet the left's attitude to education is often lacklustre, at best seeking to defend existing systems against further privatisation or other neoliberal reform, yet at worst pouring scorn on students in the socialist movement, often counterposing graduates to the ordinary people that should be focused on instead. This is particularly absurd in the UK, where around 50% of the working age population has a university qualification. That is, a huge proportion of ordinary people are graduates. Red Enlightenment requires not only a defence of education or a rolling back to an earlier period, but a wholesale re-evaluation of the purpose of education. It should not be seen primarily as a route to a job, but neither is a completely disinterested pursuit of education for education's sake. It is about developing in people a power to act, an ability to shape the world around them, 
to identify and tackle tensions and struggles in their lives, communities and the wider world. A social movement, for example, is not a purely spontaneous phenomenon, but always relies on organisers, that is, people who have learned to organise effectively. Those are skills which can and need to be passed on, making education a vital aspect of producing and reproducing social change. Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed is an important touchpoint here. He argued that we must reject what he called the banking model of education, where teachers pass on fully formed ideas that the students are intended to internalise uncritically. Instead, knowledge should be participatory and co-produced in dialogue between teacher and student. In this way, education becomes oriented towards the needs of the learner, enabling the development of critical thinking and the raising of revolutionary consciousness. We need not call for an entirely horizontal system of education, however. There is necessarily an imbalance of knowledge between teacher and student, and it is difficult to envisage how much of the natural sciences, for example, could be taught without some aspect of accepting prior authority. But even then, different methods can be used which pay greater attention to the student's body. Participation can, for example, be integrated as an alternate means of absorbing and evaluating ideas in group work, without negating the teacher as a holder and conduit of valid knowledge. Expert knowledge should still be valued, and lecture formats still have their place, but within a context where a key role of education is taken to be the support of social change. And this can be extended outside the classroom into educational resources in general. Making accessible resources is a vital part of spreading revolutionary ideas. But there is a current on the left that rejects any kind of academic discourse whatsoever, arguing that if it can't be read by the average worker, then it cannot play any role in revolutionary movement. I would have to push back against this. Whilst there are no doubt examples of unnecessary obscurantism in academia, there are many cases where domain-specific language and the assumption of prior knowledge of internal debates is a vital part of the generation of new knowledge. The question should be, are those ideas and debates also being translated into a format which can be understood by the average person? Is it being fed into activists and wider society, or being trapped in the ivory tower? And are there means for bringing people into those debates in that institutional language, or is it totally inaccessible even to those with a desire to learn? The goal should be transforming bodies, such as the university, and breaking down barriers between bodies, not merely destroying bodies and all of their potentials with it. This does require a look at how we compartmentalise knowledge. Part of what is alienating and disempowering even for highly educated people is the fragmentation of knowledge. With narrowing specialisation, one can often do little but fit oneself as a cog into existing machines, rather than work collectively to reorganise the whole machine. Systems thought and its role in fostering interdisciplinarity can surmount this fragmentation. This is what Bogdanov sought with his Tectology, a general systems worldview that would enable workers to reorganise society through the integration of knowledges. It does not mean everyone knowing everything from all disciplines. That's an impossibility. Rather, it means creating frameworks which allow us an overview of the whole, an understanding of how the parts we do know connect into that whole, 
and giving us a guide to learning more of what we don't know. We can still have specialisations. We are each different parts which can make a unique contribution to a whole which is much greater than us. But in order for this to be possible without top-down control, each human part must have some comprehension of the role they play in the whole. Practically, this would mean a much greater crossover of knowledge in the sciences and humanities. As it stands, a notion like STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics, serves to sequester a subset of students away from any need to consider social or historical issues. Likewise, a study of the humanities without any engagement with, for example, contemporary cognitive science, should be seen as equally unsatisfactory. And neither science nor humanities should be studied in isolation from any kind of embodied or creative aesthetic practice. The notion that there is an artist, poet, novelist or musician in everyone should be seen not as a frivolous liberal nicety, but an important aspect in the moulding of revolutionary subjects. And this must all, of course, be guided by politically conscious teachers themselves, organised across and embedded within institutions, who emphasise the socio-economic aspects of climate science, the development of global consciousness through the humanities, and the collective liberatory aspects of artistic practices. I'm not, however, saying that all research in the sciences, humanities or the arts must be done with a socialist justification. There is still value in scientific study for the sake of simply increasing knowledge or of art for art's sake. And this kind of research for research's sake can provide the aspect of random variation that drives a system's evolution. Too strongly restricting academic work to what may seem, before the fact, to be politically useful will ultimately strangle its potentials for unexpected discoveries. The goal instead should be to allow that chaos and variety at the local scale to be the creative drive that provides new material for global purposes. It is important also to reframe the role of particular disciplines, where languages and religious studies are today advertised for their role in enabling business, they could instead be oriented towards fostering intercultural dialogue within and across social movements. Ancient history and archaeology can help us to develop a shared notion of the human that breaks down barriers of nationality. Genetics can do likewise, providing both evidence of our shared ancestry and attacking the basis of modern racism. For example, the Marxist scientist Richard Levontin observed that genetic diversity within human populations is far greater than between them, such that there is more variation among black people and among white people than there is between black and white people, an intervention which in one swoop punctures the core of essentialist scientific racism. It is not, however, simply a case of connecting disciplines as though they were uncomplicated, undifferentiated wholes. It may require struggle within disciplines and knowledge systems themselves. For example, I firmly believe that modern discourses around sex and gender fluidity are supported both by the ontology set out in this podcast and by contemporary biological study of sex differentiation. Having rejected the metaphysical notion of fixed essences, any underlying fixed notion of man or woman must also be rejected, in favour of seeing these as emerging out of complex relations between a variety of parts – chromosomes, internal and external sex characteristics, social categorizations, and so on. And in that case, a change in the relation between these parts can, at a certain threshold, 
create different emergent sex or gender. The supposedly irrefutable dimorphism of the human body, its splitting into two physical categories, must be seen as, at best, a relative dimorphism, not an absolute one, a strong but very imperfect tendency for features to cluster together. Between man and woman, both physically and socially, is neither a hard binary nor a smooth spectrum, but something more akin to two peaks in a hilly landscape. There may appear to be a clear distinction when seen from a distance, but it collapses on close inspection, with no hard line identifiable between them. It would in any case be difficult to claim, on the one hand, a world of infinite mutability and possibility, a negation of rigid identity and an experimentation with the boundaries of knowledge, and then on the other hand argue for the immutability of sex, that psychology is reducible to physical biology, and that physical biology at birth is one's life destiny. Whilst such queer theory has at times been used to quite liberal and individualist ends, there are increasingly bold socialist applications, such as in the recent essay collection Transgender Marxism, edited by Jules Joanne Gleason and L. O'Rourke. In either case, those queer and transgender people that transform and break the boundaries of traditional notions of sex and gender I consider to be potential comrades in Red Enlightenment, and they deserve support and solidarity. It is true that such approaches to gender and sex, to absence of essences and so on, may put us at odds with many in traditional religious communities. It is crucial, however, that we neither totally reject any interaction with those we disagree with, nor abandon our principles. We can surmount this difficulty once we recognise that there does not need to be a singular, all-encompassing approach carried out by everyone on the left. Different parts of the movement can and must play different roles, some engaging in the difficult and often slow work of persuasion and building empathy, whilst others can avoid entirely those people that they may not be able to productively work with. Sometimes it is about finding elements in other communities that we can already work alongside. It may surprise atheists to find Christian communities that are not only explicitly socialist, but also pro-LGBT, supportive of the right to abortion, and so on. In some cases, it is about finding, supporting, and creating links with these groups. In others, it is about making space within the left as a whole to help religious people to begin creating these networks themselves, or supporting those religious leftists in their struggle against bigotry within their own communities. There is no singular approach that all people can or should be taking. It is about identifying appropriate interventions based on the bodies and struggles in question. Enlightenment, in any case, does not require everyone to be involved. It cannot. There will be those who resist. That we become polarised is often spoken about as a political failure, but in fact it is merely a failure of political orthodoxy, if we are to shift away from business as usual, this requires people to get off the fence and join us in resisting. But in getting off the fence, there opens up the possibility that they will leap off to the right and not to the left. The goal should be not to avoid polarisation, but to polarise having laid the groundwork that will encourage more people to step into our direction and not the opposite. We should not pander to existing prejudices, that is, merely representing public opinion. Opinions are often not actualised until the pollster asks the question, until the election arrives and forces it. 
The job is in the shaping of public opinion, the shaping of the field of potentials, not uncovering it as though it is always fixed and fully formed just out of view. Nor, however, should we bombard people with extreme, unfamiliar demands which seem unrelated to their lives. Neither purely affirmative nor an absolute negation, it is about finding someone's starting conditions, their direction of travel, and travelling with them, but at the same time presenting resistance that pushes them into a new direction. It is then a struggle for certain knowledges to become hegemonic, passing a threshold at which it is both common sense and institutionalised. In contemporary union organising, people like Jane McAlevey have promoted the notion of whole worker organising, where rather than only seeing a worker, you engage with the workers' other networks, activities and desires, including housing, their children's schooling, community facilities and so on. In the same vein, we should engage whole student education, understanding learning to feed into home life, interpersonal issues like love, friendship and the death of family members, the struggles around class, race and gender, the environment and so on. Individual students are not abstract, interchangeable units, but are unique bodies with their own histories. And whilst some amount of standardisation may be necessary to educate at scale, a far greater scope for shaping education around individual and communal needs is possible. Education should then include a focus on developing the skills to create and sustain organisations which will embed social change. Institutions like universities can become engines of social change, as disseminators and not hoarders of knowledge. This would require significant but achievable institutional changes, such as the end of tuition fees and paywall journals which limit access to knowledge, and the end of neoliberal reforms like league tables and impact assessments that place institutions into competition and increasingly turn postgraduates into a pool of underpaid and overexploited labourers. Free and lifelong education should be seen as a radical demand, not merely because it rolls back gains made by neoliberalism, but also for how it can help to foster revolutionary subjectivity. To see the university as a potential disseminator of knowledge, as a movement accelerator, means I cannot advocate, as some do on the left, for the total dismantling of the university. Some aspects of mainstream education should indeed be smashed, such as elite private schooling, what is in the UK confusingly called public schooling. However, the transformation of the university must take place alongside that of grassroots educational organisations and informal communal practices. The revitalisation of libraries, of free community education, of workplace education, and of course groups dedicated to all the kind of practices covered in the previous episode, from socialist gyms to communal art and music projects with a post-capitalist orientation. I have personally run experimental radical mindfulness groups, and UK organisations like Plan C and The World Transformed have attempted to bring dance, music and art back into contact with the socialist movement. The next step after such small-scale experiments is to proliferate these practices massively, rather than allowing them to remain small and localised for which I'd point listeners to my book, Shock Doctrine of the Left. There is also an article for The Ecologist which summarises similar ideas, titled The DNA of Extinction Rebellion, where I argue that, for all the problems of Extinction Rebellion, we can find therein a useful model of viral organisational growth. 
But education must mean more than a place of learning we go to outside of our ordinary lives. The role of the internet in education cannot be underemphasized. The creation of and support for online education on popular platforms is essential, and the growth of left YouTube in recent years is an important and largely unprecedented example of this as a mass propaganda tool. Yet we should also be learning as we physically live, and so the transformation of our lives and society goes hand in hand with such education. The expansion of democracy in communities and workplaces is a key way people can learn how to live in a new radically democratic world and to generate desire for it. What we call democracy today, however, is only the thinnest veneer of what such a radically democratic world would look like. A single decision every few years, one which reduces massively complex systemic issues into a binary choice, and which involves no necessary debate or reflection or education on the issues in play, is a democracy only in outline. Direct community democracy, where people make collective decisions about the place they live, engaging with people they care about and who have a real impact on their daily survival, is qualitatively distinct from the national representative democracy of atomized citizens. But even such direct democracy is not a panacea. Without training and education with an orientation towards justice and liberation, democracy can just as easily be used to create and enforce repressive laws and further marginalise the already marginalised. In the UK, the current vociferous resistance to traveller communities by sedentary citizens would not likely be any different under direct democracy, but it at least opens the opportunity to give those traveller communities a voice in formal discussions, to facilitate face-to-face -face dialogue, to educate people about the history and character of different communities, and to come to mutually empowering resolutions. And here we can look to the global and historical sources of Red Enlightenment for some grounding, learning about, for example, the practices of communal democracy and transformative justice in, for example, American indigenous communities. As some have pointed out, the social organisation of the Iroquois was in fact an inspiration upon Marx and Engels in their conception of communism. To combine this with a forward-looking scientific approach, looking at, for example, how emerging digital tools can open up the possibility of scalable direct democracy on even broader scales, one which is able to engage the bodies of participants, is the kind of conversation that Red Enlightenment seeks to enable. As well as transforming social organisation, Red Enlightenment means a development of global consciousness and shared identity. Such a common human identity requires an other that we collectively resist, that we have a distributed fight-or-flight response against, that we share an identity in opposition to. The growing awareness of climate change and the pandemic both provide this potential, but we should push this shared identity much harder. We may not have a precisely shared experience because of our differing national policies and the disparities of the illness across lines of class and race, but we nonetheless have a shared source of our problems, a shared opponent. More than just an external opponent, however, we need an internally shared past, present and future. Though the depth of the human past may have lost its beguiling mythical infinitude to rationalised studies of history and archaeology, we can still lose ourselves in its magnitude of unseen lives, its cities, its stories, the bodily feeling of ancient life. 
Realising that people in distant times had relations as rich and complex and unique as we do now. These were people who loved, feared, mourned, felt joy and excitement, hope, had ambitions, were kind or devious, merciful or manipulative. Literature, poetry and religious texts can hint at these lives. Gilgamesh, the Odyssey, the Bhagavad Gita, the I Ching, Sufi poetry... Without destroying the historical and cultural specifics, we can nonetheless see these as the products of, and a record of, human life, of a shared human history. In place of exclusive nationalisms, we must loudly exclaim this shared identity, along with our shared struggle against global crises, and our necessarily shared future, if we are to surmount them. The fragments of this Red Enlightenment are already there, the task is to piece them together and build it as a framework for changing consciousness. Enlightenment is not a goal. There is no such thing as being enlightened. It is a process. We can travel along it, but never reach an end. There is not even a fixed path before us. We must clear the route for ourselves. We can at best decide our direction of travel, steering as we go, but we must always be ready for the unknown to emerge over the horizon. That brings us to the end of this series. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I hope that it has been useful and will inspire you to build on these lines of thought. The next step is for me to convert these episodes into a book, which will hopefully be coming out on repeater books next year. In the meantime, if you would like to continue supporting me as I write, or to show appreciation for the podcast, do consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash on a life glug. Thanks very much for listening.